Welcome to Digging In with Missouri Farm Bureau. I'm Spencer Tuma, Director of National Legislative Programs at the Home Office. Today, we're continuing our series of podcasts where we visit with members of Missouri's congressional delegation, and we're really pleased to be joined by Senator Roy Blunt today. Senator, thanks so much for joining us. Spencer, great to be with you and uh, all of our Farm Bureau friends. Absolutely. Well, Senator, I think this might actually be one of the first times you're joining us on our podcast, and so we appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. I, I know things are quite busy in Washington right now, so uh, in the interest of time, uh, we'll go ahead and get started. I know, Senator, you have been representing Missouri at various levels of elected leadership for a long time, and a lot of our members know you well, and you've maybe even been to their farms, but For some of our listeners who are newer, or maybe just some folks who might be listening who aren't from Missouri, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to the U.S. Senate? Well, certainly I've had great opportunities. Uh, Missourians have given me those opportunities over the years. I've I've benefited from that. Farm Bureau has been an important part of so much of that, Spencer. And uh, I was a county official in Greene County. yeah, when I was 23, and uh, after that became the first Republican Secretary of State elected in 52 years in 1985. Uh, and um, then I was at uh, Southwest Baptist University as the president uh, there for four years, uh, from 93 till 97, when I entered the, the Congress, the House of Representatives in Washington, um, had a, a, spectac- a really incredible set of opportunities uh, in the House, where I became the Chief Deputy Whip and then the Majority Whip pretty quickly in my career there. Uh, and in 2010, when Kit Bond decided not to run again, uh, I ran for the Senate uh, with the help of Farm Bureau in that race and virtually in every other race where the Farm Bureau had a reason to be involved uh, and uh, have been in this job since, uh, a real opportunity to work for Missourians at a critical time. Obviously, we've had great challenges like we've had the last year, but I also think we're on the edge of great opportunities of what's going to happen in agriculture, what's going to happen in world food demand, what what needs to happen with our infrastructure, the connectedness issues of broadband, all of those things that I've been able to be involved in only because Missourians let me be involved at the level I've had had a chance to be part of really our statewide discussion for about 40 years now. And uh, what a what a great uh, opportunity it's been for me. I don't think there's been, there been five days in 40 years I've, has, I've been uh, reluctant to come to work <laughs> uh, and still love working for Missourians. Well, that's a pretty good track record if you think about 40 years. Um, and Senator, one thing I really enjoy, you know, as I go around and, and visit with our, our members, Farm Bureau members, I always remember to tell them, you know, not every member of Congress um, or senator has an agricultural background, but Senator Blunt does, and he can milk a cow. Isn't that right? Well, I can definitely milk a cow. My mom and dad were dairy farmers. Um, I uh, don't remember when I wasn't able to milk a cow, and whether it was the uh, celebrity milking contest at the Ozark Empire Fair or just occasionally uh, I have to find that uh, that cow that wouldn't uh, take her calf or whatever we were doing. Besides the dairy farm part of uh, farming, 
uh, it's a skill that I don't use very often anymore, but it comes back really quickly. <laughs> it's kind of like riding a bike. So It is like riding a bike. Well, Senator, you know, we certainly appreciate your leadership and have appreciated your friendship over several years of, of your tenure. Um, I guess the, the big question I want to tackle first for today's episode, and, and I think you'll have a lot of great insight on this, uh, I, I would think several members of, of ours would agree that 2020 has certainly been an unprecedented year in a lot of ways, but I wouldn't think being a lawmaker would be very easy during a pandemic. So how has COVID-19 and, and that whole situation impacted your job in Washington? Well, it's impacted my job in Washington. It's also maybe even in many ways impacted my job more at home. Mm -hmm. The events that you would normally go to, the things that have become part of a routine of always being at the Delta Days in southeast Missouri or the State Fair or the annual Farm Bureau meeting, which uh, I was at last December, and I hope I'm at again this December. Mm -hmm. I hope that's one of the things that doesn't get uh, canceled. But so many of those things uh, have changed in the last year. I will say from the committees I chair in the Senate, uh, both the Rules Committee, which is sort of a procedural committee for the daily operation of the Senate, whether that's deciding how we're going to function in a COVID-19 environment or what access to the building we'll be able to allow at a time like this, or the appropriating committee I chair is, is a committee that uh, funds more than any other committee except the Defense Committee, and it funds labor and education and health. Uh, and when you think about all of the discussions around COVID-19, uh, when you they're mostly around labor and education and health. Yes, and sir. then after that, how to get the economy started again. So the, the time has been different, but certainly certainly packed with uh, discussions with the director of the Center for Disease Control, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, the Department of uh, the Secretary of Education, the Department of Education, the Department of Labor. All of those things um, really, if, if you want to be busy, and I usually do everything I can to be sure I'm making the most of my time. Uh, being in the middle of this discussion, I think, was better than wondering what was going on in mm -hmm. the discussion. And uh, that committee opportunity uh, put me there. And the trillion-dollar package we did, the last package we put together to to try to move forward now with the recovery phase uh, from COVID-19, about $250 billion of that, uh, was a committee that I chair. That was probably the biggest single part of that whole bill. And so talking about new ways to develop a vaccine, the importance of uh, tests that uh, get a result quicker and are cheaper and are easier to take, all those things that uh, were way ahead of where anybody thought we would be uh, nine months ago. But at the same time, it seems like it's been one of the longest nine or ten months in the history of the country as we've tried to deal with this whole idea of a pandemic that um, went through the economy in so many different ways. Absolutely. You mentioned, Senator, I'm, I'm sure, you know, as you mentioned, labor, education, and, and health seem to be, you can, if you have any topic related to the pandemic, it can probably be lumped in some way to those three categories. Rural health care is something that Farm Bureau members have been concerned about for a long time, and, and that's certainly been highlighted uh, through the situation we've experienced the last nine or ten months. Uh, we know we've had many rural areas that are far away from major hospitals. It, it can be difficult for people to access health care. You know, what, I guess, changes have you made so far 
throughout the pandemic? And I guess, what do you see on the horizon as far as changes to rural health care as we move through, hopefully, what will soon be the end of the pandemic? Well, in, in terms of changes, we ask our hospitals, including our rural hospitals, to do the hardest thing you could possibly ask them to do, which is stop all the income you can mm-hmm. possibly stop, all of the elective surgery, anything you think you don't have to do, don't do it. And by the way, don't get paid for it because you haven't done it. Uh, but stand ready to deal with the worst uh, eco- the worst uh, healthcare issue problem your community's ever had to deal with. So mm-hmm. keep your keep your spending at a at a high level, keep your income at a low level and see what happens. And the answer of course to what happens is it doesn't produce a very good result. So uh, one of the things we did first was was provide some provider relief uh, to hospitals and doctors and other providers. We talk about provider relief, about 80% of health, federal health care money uh, goes to hospitals and about 20% goes to clinics and doctors and other things. But to provide that provider relief as much as possible uh, to make it uh, – relief that uh, wouldn't have to be paid back by rural hospitals particularly uh, and to uh, look at ways they could provide services in a different way and so telehealth uh, became a much bigger part of the healthcare care uh, picture in 2020 i've been arguing for about five years that whether it was behavioral health or any other kind of health that telehealth was critically important to uh, people in in outstate Missouri, people in rural areas, people that are hour or two or more away from their doctor, and maybe even more than that, away from their specialist if they have to go to a special doctor. Uh, and we've really made big steps forward there. A lot of that has now been made permanent, and all of it that wasn't made permanent has been extended through at least the end of this year, some of it into early next year by the the federal agency that manages who pays the Medicare dollar, who pays the Medicaid dollar. Uh, But most of this is really driven by whether Medicare will pay or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it is paying now. And I've I've talked to lots lots of uh, doctors on this topic, Spencer. And when you say just, I try not to prejudice the question. And I say, how many many times out of 100 uh, is that telehealth visit as good as a visit where somebody makes the effort to come and be in the same room with you? Mm-hmm. And the answer is always, well, way more than nine out of 10 times, Wow, way more than 90 times out of 100. And then uh, if you've got a nurse practitioner or a clinic or somebody, you probably even narrow that down to where uh, the, the specialist doesn't need to actually be in the room with you, but does need to be able to see you and talk to you and ask questions that you can answer yourself or with just a little bit of help are able to answer. So rural clinics suddenly become an op- a, a door that opens uh, to, um, to health care in ways that they haven't been able to be before. And most importantly, uh, if you're – the government pays for it, and usually if the government will pay for it, your insurance company will also pay for it. Right. A lot of insurance companies follow sort of the – the Medicare rule of, uh, well, should this be an insured item or not? And uh, telehealth and telebehavioral health, you know, lots of people who had an opioid challenge or another behavioral health challenge have had real challenges 
during what we've gone through this year. One, the increased isolation that a lot of people mm-hmm. had. Two, the concern that you or somebody in your family uh, had lost your job or was might lose your job or that your somebody in your family uh, had a health challenge that too many times resulted uh, in actually losing that person. And uh, all of those things uh, made the behavioral health challenge greater. So it's also something that uh, can deliver pretty effectively through a telehealth situation. I think that's probably the biggest step forward with rural health, but also I think we drew a lot of attention finally to what, I, what I've been saying and others have been saying, frankly, since the passage of, of, um, of the Affordable Care Act in that uh, rural hospitals and rural health providers are not adequately dealt with in what is happening and likely to happen under this greater uh, government belief that everybody will just have insurance and so it'll mm-hmm. all work out. You don't have to have the kind of special help for hospitals that uh, really are, are there and, and is the only place that people can go. And if that hospital goes away, that health care uh, beachhead goes away as well. Absolutely. You know, really appreciate, Senator, your comments on telehealth. That's something, and, and I've told this story to other people, but, you know, I'm, I'm from rural southwest Missouri, a town of 250 people. My parents and my grandparents still live there. And one of my grandparents' favorite things to do and, the, and that they're able to do is they can FaceTime with their grandkids on the iPad. Imagine if they were able to receive some of their medical care, not all. You know, they're, they're one and a half to two hours easily from a major hospital. Imagine what that can do uh, for rural citizens who do want to age in place as they um, as they get older. But all of that hinges on another topic that I know you and I and and certainly Mr. Hurst have discussed at length, which is rural broadband. And that's something that whether you're talking about healthcare and telemedicine or education of our students, uh, it's it's obviously very important to people who live and work in rural America. We've known that, and I know you've known that for a very long time, but. Uh, we've certainly seen a lot more attention paid to broadband probably since the pandemic with everybody being forced to work from home and, and go to school from home in some cases for a while. What do you see on the horizon for broadband and, and do you think any good is going to come out of this situation on that front? Well, I think so. I was just talking uh, this morning to a, a new nominee to the Federal Communications Commission and most of our most of my discussion with him um, before he has his hearing with the Commerce Committee that I'm on was on this topic of connectedness and rural broadband. Certainly it's something, uh, uh, Spencer, that you and I have talked about a lot. Uh, President Hearst, Blake Hearst, has made this a cornerstone of his efforts leading uh, Farm Bureau to be sure that we get connected. The digital divide became bigger uh, during the pandemic than it had ever been before with uh, virtual learning and if school is closed and uh, your kid can uh, keep up with the virtual classes because they have that connectedness of high-speed broadband, it's still tough, mm-hmm. but it's unbelievably tough. It's impossibly tough if they're not connected. And, and then you know, combine that with uh, the health issue of, you know, not only, as you mentioned, in, in the case of members of your family, uh, just not having to make the effort to get to the doctor or, or if you can't get the doctor, you miss the appointment mm-hmm. and the doctor's time is also impacted and it, it's much more easily managed. And then, as I've said a number of times, 
I think it's really the key to more than many of our uh, small communities in our state uh, thrive or go just eventually no longer economically viable. One of the things we've seen in the pandemic is people beginning to think, well, if I can work from home, why can't I live wherever I want to live? And there are lots of people who would like to look at that 1,500 or 1,000 person or 500 person or even 200 person community in our state where church activities still matter and school sports still matter and uh, people may not know every kid's name, but they actually do know every house every kid lives in. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's a very appealing lifestyle to lots of people today people that have great jobs with great income would many of many people would like that but they can't make that choice if that community is not connected in a way that allows them to have the kind of uh, income that they like to have and so I think it's really the lifeblood of our communities and communities that get connected uh, are, are going to I think really grow in the next uh, five and ten years because of what we've just gone through communities that don't get connected will just wind up as a place where people live because they've always lived there Mm -hmm. or they live there because there's not much competition to live there and so suddenly the rent is really cheap and uh, that's not the formula for the kind of community that people want to have that's diverse and vital and growing Um, and um, and I I think this is a critical issue and as uh, you said earlier, uh, Blake Hurst has made this one of uh, the uh, constant flags flying uh, by Farm Bureau in every discussion we've had since uh, uh, he became the president, really, of Farm Bureau. And then for the in, uh, for several years, it was the, the flagship issue, precision farming, connectedness mm-hmm. to information about pricing, all those things, critically important. And we just have to get there, the... the um, High-speed broadband is important to people and families and the economy today as the telephone was 75 years ago, and we need to look at it exactly the same way. I think you made a really great point about broadband and and that quality of life indicator really being an integral part of how we view our rural communities. I I think the same could be said for your local school district and, and for the education system, that whether that's a county school or a school that's located in your small town, um, Senator, just want to get your thoughts. We've we've had our kids back to school for a while, uh, but certainly things looked pretty different this fall and, and the end of last spring than they have in, in years past. You know, what are your thoughts on the way school districts have handled, you know, reopening and keeping their students and staff safe? Well, no surprise. Elementary and secondary schools have done better than colleges. One reason is <laughs> yes, you've still sir. Got, you've still got involved parents. You've still got a relatively... <laughs> Um, closed environment, uh, and uh, I think generally that's gone better than uh, people anticipated. Some schools have had to look at this and do this in slightly different ways, uh, but I, I think the value of in-person learning is significant. Uh, the economic mm-hmm. impact and the family impact of suddenly another family responsibility becomes a constantly changing schedule or somebody who's studying at home and uh, parents have become much more involved in that than they might not have otherwise. And, and, and frankly, if somebody's studying home, most families think somebody has to be there to be mm-hmm. part of that. 
and with the working uh, single parents or, or two parents working in, in a two-parent household, it really has been a huge challenge. So uh, I think our school districts have worked hard to get back to school. Hopefully, we'll continue to do this after over six months now of some degree of isolation. Uh, people are so eager, I think, to reconnect that um, sometimes that's done without thinking about the importance of uh, just the basic um, wearing wearing your mask, try to keep some distancing. If you can't keep distancing, be sure and keep uh, that mask on. We've decided now this disease is more airborne than surface-borne. Mm -hmm. And washing your hands is still important. Cleaning surface is still important. Uh, but thinking about what you're doing when you're uh, when you're communicating and um, how, how you need to be protecting other people. It's really created a lot of isolation, too, for lots of uh, of older people or people with uh, various kinds of, of, of uh, comorbidities uh, mm -hmm. of, of health problems that people think if they get this, they're in real trouble. And so, well, we just can't go see uh, somebody at the nursing home for sure has been often the case, or maybe we shouldn't drop by and see grandma and grandpa or great grandma and grandpa, because uh, we sure don't want to, carry something into their house mm -hmm. so we, we're working hard to get through this i think we're going to have vaccines available and widely available uh, in the first quarter of next year uh, and if we deal with those vaccines in the proper way you know something like probably healthcare providers first people that are most impacted by the disease second maybe after that the group needs to be our our uh, uh our our, our uh, frontline responders, people mm -hmm. that are at the food processing facility, at the grocery store, at the bank, uh, people that see other people, if they can't get it, this would be one of the main conduits, of course, of this disease. And before you know it, even though everybody hasn't had a vaccine yet, and everybody won't ever probably have a vaccine, we've got people that won't want to take that. Before you know it, you just don't have nearly as many opportunities right. for somebody else to uh, to uh, share this disease with you, not knowing maybe that they even have it. Uh, and so we're, we're writing a new book on um, how to develop tests for a, a, a disease we didn't know anything about a year ago, uh, how to develop vaccines at least twice as quick as vaccines have ever been developed before, but with the same... Uh, same safety of, uh, needs, but just getting involved, the government getting involved earlier as a partner to say, here are, this is basically where we are right now. Here are six vaccines that we think are more likely than not to mm -hmm. be approved. Let's, let's partner up. Uh, let's let these six vaccines go ahead at some stage before they're finally approved and start producing the vaccine. And let's say three of them are approved. You've got tens of millions of doses, maybe hundreds of millions of doses available immediately. Right. And the, th the three that weren't approved, uh, we, we lose a little government money in that. But the, while $6 billion or so sounds like a lot of money, it's not a lot of money in a $6 trillion fight right. against the disease and for the economy. And so we're uh, looking at this differently, the the warp speed idea of vaccines, what we call the shark tank and testing. Uh, in uh, October, we're going to have more tests produced and more than all, all of the testing that's been done up until now. 
and about half the October tests will be that are produced about a 150 million total, but about half of them will be a test that you can take either at home on your own or at a point of care mm -hmm. and within 15 minutes or so get a yes or no answer rather than having to wait three days wow. for a lab to report back. So we're, we're doing this in a different way, but uh, people are certainly eager to reconnect with church, with friends, with uh, their normal activities, and we just have to do that with uh, more patience as we work now through probably the last six months or so of what it's going to take to uh, to beat this disease back. It's really interesting to hear all of all of that insight, and and particularly in a year that has been uncertain for for just so so many people. It it is refreshing for me to hear that that there is work getting done, that there's progress being made. Uh, Senator, you know, I guess I'll, I'll take a little bit of step back. If you think about, you mentioned you were at our annual meeting last year in, in December of 2019, and I am pleased to tell you that the board of directors did vote last week uh, to go ahead and have our annual meeting. Now we're going to make some modifications. We're going to kind of condense it down and, and try to do social distancing and take all those precautions, but uh, hopefully we will be able to see you down there uh, in December, but but if you think about 2019, you know we we came through 2019, and at our annual meeting, everybody just said, "Well, let's get on to 2020." Things things have got to get better than they were in 2019, and, and 2019 was a hard year for a lot of people, particularly along the Missouri and Mississippi rivers. Uh, I know that you have been a strong player in the Senate's discussion around water infrastructure projects. Uh, so as we as we think back, it, it seems like it's been a little bit longer than a couple years ago. But, you know, as we look back at the devastation we saw, what do you think are the, some steps being taken to continue that recovery process? Because that's continued to be ongoing, even despite the pandemic. Well, the, the, the Mississippi River, without question, is going to be more important to world commerce in the next uh, 10 years than it than it than it's been in a long time. That's already happening. We're seeing what happens as world food demand increases. It is an incredible asset uh, to us. The river system uh, we have with the central part of that system being, being the, the north-south Mississippi, the Missouri River, the longest river in America, also critically important and uh, through our state the river should be navigable uh, mm -hmm. and the more we uh, the more we connect rail and highway to water the more competitive we're going to be if something's eventually going to go on water it should go on water as soon as it can and that's why those ports in the up and down the Missouri need to be uh, much more effectively utilized but for that to happen we have to do a better job on what's supposed to be the core's second priority uh, in the lower Missouri, and that's uh, navigation. First mm -hmm. priority is flood control, second priority is navigation. Uh, and frankly, I think if you get back to making navigation a bigger priority on the lower Missouri River, uh, the part that runs through our entire state, uh, you'd also be helping a lot with flood control. It becomes an issue of moving water and depth of the channel and you know, just logical. A 10-foot channel carries more water than an 8-foot channel, uh, and um, and you can use any two numbers you want to, to to illustrate that in your mind. It's really important. Congressman Graves and I uh, 
just put a letter together that uh, we sent urging the Corps to provide additional funding for projects that would in, improve the safety and navigation along the river. Mm-hmm. Um, Congressman Holly and, and our, our House delegation uh, joined in, in that, uh, as have um, the other people that are affected by the lower Missouri. You know, the, where the Missouri comes together and where Iowa and Nebraska and Missouri and Kansas all come together, uh, we all have a common uh, pro- opportunity here, and we also really all saw a common devastation in that flood two years ago. I was just right. up uh, at Rockport uh, uh, a month ago looking at uh, what we've done to set the levee back to move water more effectively. I think the Corps has done a, a good job there uh, with a $600 million uh, project. And while uh, uh, what the Corps does is sometimes the problem, the Corps only does what the Corps is allowed to do by law. It's right. not the Corps. It's the plan that's a problem. And we've had a serious plan in the lower Missouri since the Missouri River uh, plan of uh, of 2003 uh, or four for the uh, 14 years that have gone on since then, uh, we've had much, much bigger flood problems with similar amounts of rain than we ever had before. And part of it is getting, trying to let the river do more of what the river wants to do. And uh, that's that's a problem for communities along the river and businesses along the river and farms along the river. Uh, and we can achieve the same kind of wildlife and habitat um, opportunities without putting so much else at risk. And um, we're going to work hard to see that we do that. Absolutely. Well, we certainly appreciate your leadership on that. I, I know you and Congressman Graves both have been very, very strong advocates for those who were who were devastated by that flooding and, and, and who had been devastated in previous floods as well. Uh, Senator, I know we're wrapping up our time together, kind of bump, bumping up on the end of our episode here. Um, so we've covered a lot of heavy topics, and, and certainly there's a lot of serious issues that uh, have have faced us in 2020 and, and in 2019 as well. Uh, so I want to move on to something a little bit lighter, and we're going to ask our Missouri Farm Bureau question of the week. And, and some background for you is we actually started this by calling it the quarantine question, which was we were doing the podcast uh-huh. from home and, and trying to do something fun and, you know, try to get to know our hosts and our listeners just a little bit better. So... This week's uh, question of the week, uh, keep in mind for our listeners, we're recording this on the 1st of October, uh, so this episode will be released later this month. Um, But we have officially entered October, which means that every time I open social media, everybody's talking about pumpkin spice. So, Senator Blunt, what is your favorite fall-themed drink? My favorite fall-themed drink is a pumpkin spice latte but we didn't have those when when I was growing up where I was growing up but um, I do like pumpkin anyway and that's a pretty easy way to get it but I've also figured out recently it's a pretty easy way to get uh, lots of calories so I'm a little <laughs> thoughtful about it but that is my that is my favorite fall drink everything in moderation right everything in moderation so well I appreciate you you playing along and joining in. Um, you know, before we sign off, Senator, are, are there any final thoughts you'd want to leave with our listeners? 
Well, you know, my, the relationship I've had and our office has had with uh, the Farm Bureau family has been great. We've got great people in, in the state. Uh, they've missed being out like they'd like to be out. Uh, Derek Coates, who is my deputy chief of staff, who's based in the state, has such great relationships with Farm Bureau and, and our whole ag community. Don Lucetta, who's worked for me in the House and the Senate now for a couple of decades is at every meeting he can get to mm-hmm. and has been for uh, a long time. And uh, on that annual meeting, uh, that'll be President Hearst's last meeting. He's one of my great close friends for a long time, uh, longer even than than Charlie uh, Cruz, who I became friends with when I was Secretary of State and he was Director of Agriculture. Blake and I have been good friends even longer than that. But between the two of them, I couldn't have had uh, better and closer advisors and friends in the last two uh, Farm Bureau presidents. I'm going to be there if I can possibly be there for uh, Blake's uh, last um, annual meeting as president and look forward to seeing how we move forward together. Uh, And Missouri Farm Bureau has always been a very forward-looking organization and has made a big difference uh, in our state. Uh, and has made a big difference, frankly, for me and my family personally, and I'm grateful for that relationship. Well, we certainly uh, appreciate those comments and and really have always appreciated your friendship and the relationship we have with you and your family, and, as well as your staff. Um, I see Don Lucetta at a lot of meetings when we're allowed to have them, so um, we, we have a good time. But, Senator, we, we appreciate your time once again. Hopefully we will see you at our annual meeting, and uh, we will go ahead and sign off. Great. Spencer, see you soon. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.